Welcome to the new school. What we wanted to do was talk about the concept of authenticity and vulnerability in an industry that has typically been super buttoned up, super professional, and a little bit old school. Hi, it's Meg. I'm here with Candace, and this week on the New School Podcast, we are co-hosting a guest that honestly blew us away. We've been thinking about the conversation all week, okay? So, like, I know you all already know Carl Richards because who doesn't? And if you don't, this is your opportunity. He is a CFP. He's the creator of the Sketch Guy column, which is a weekly sketch series in the New York Times. He's also published books, The One-Page Financial Plan, as well as The Behavior Gap. And he talks about being on a mission to transform the advice industry by being more human. And he also shares with us his most vulnerable moment. And it's an awesome thing to experience. So I don't want to take any more time. Let's jump right in. So Carl, it's such a joy to have you on. We've been following all of your work for so long. And I have so many questions to ask you. But I think as a good starting point, Something that I had read that you had written, or I think you had said it, and I was just so intrigued by it is, you said, my job is to notice things in the world, name them, and draw them. So I'm kind of intrigued. What are you being called to notice right now? That's a super good question. We, it's funny, we were literally just at a, a, a team meeting a little bit before this, and we were talking about this exact concept. Um, the the thing that's been most um, I don't know I, impactful is probably the right word for me. The last couple of months is this idea, and I think we've known this forever. And, and but I think we have a hard time acknowledging it, and we certainly have a hard time living with it. And especially people who consider themselves planners, people who make plans with life is that reality, uncertainty is reality. And, and, and I, I think that's, I mean, if, if you doubt that, go back and look at your New Year's resolutions or your goals for 2020. Go back and look at the plan you made in January of 2020. And you're going to find that nothing turned out the way you thought. And so I think what I'm noticing lately is just this idea of needing to be comfortable with our inability to tie up all the loose ends Mm. and, and specifically how that relates with planners and advisors is this, the, the phrase I've been repeating most often lately is a real financial advisor is not a defender of an outdated map, but a guide in a changing landscape. And I think that all comes from that piece. I remember, I'm just pointing out the window. I remember where I was walking in the middle of like the darkest part of the shutdown, you know, dark night, rainy, listening to a, listening to um, Pema Children, actually her book, When Things Fall Apart. I love that like, book. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sentence in there. She says, you've tried a thousand times to tie up all the loose ends and yet the ground is still shifting beneath your feet. And that's when I sort of realized like, yeah, I have all those spreadsheets. 
I have like I have a thousand spreadsheets with all the loose ends. And so that's to me, if if an advisor, I'm starting to get my head around what that means. And I'm also starting to realize like how massively valuable that is to understand the value of being a guide and not a defender and how different that job is. It's all the same tools. It's a, it's the same office. It's the same tie. It's the same clothes. It's the same, whatever. But it, but the way you think about it and the way you communicate, it's completely different. So that that's what I've been noticing the most lately. And how do you think that that will either has impacted or will impact how guides, planners, advisors work with investors when we all just acknowledge and recognize that investors are also living with the same level of uncertainty. Uncertainty is the new reality. I love that. Like, how are you seeing that shift the consumer advisor relationship? Yeah. Well, I think um, the dilemma is we, we, we've got a problem. We, we have built an entire, I'm speaking broadly here, an entire industry around selling certainty right? Like that's kind of what we've been communicating. I mean, we, we, we've trained people to expect that we draw straight lines that look like that are supposed to represent 30 years of somebody's life. Right. And and we, 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 we use words like I'm 93% confident you're going to meet those goals. Like that, that we've been selling certainty. And I think what changed, the problem is certainty is really easy to sell, right? Like, because humans want it now more than ever. We'll we'll grab on to somebody who will promise us certainty. The dilemma, of course, is you can't deliver it. So you can sell it really easily. It's what people are kind of expecting, but you can't deliver it. And so once we start to recognize that, we start to think about how do we play a series of, I call them righteous tricks. You know, and a righteous trick is just to be clear, a righteous trick is in service of the client. Right. Versus a bait and switch, which is a service of the advisor. But righteous tricks are helping people understand, like, I know you're after this, you know, performance, certainty, solutions, products. I know you think that's what we do. But let me take you to another place where I understand. And if we can get there, then we start to realize, like, man, I can greet people with empathy. I mean, one last little tangent on this is like, I I like to think about like the role of a guide. If you've been, I've done some guiding and then I've, I've been guided in really stressful situations in the mountains or on big rivers in New Zealand. And, um, both being a guide and being guided. If, if you're on a mountain and a storm comes in, you don't get mad at the guide. I mean, you, you might because you're feeling scared, and a good guide, if you got mad at them because a storm came in, a good guide wouldn't get defensive because they realize there's nothing to defend. A good guide would say, gosh, you know, I'm a little scared too. Or, I, you know what? I didn't expect the storm either. That's pretty windy. Like, you know, let you vent. And then they'd reach across and grab you by the shoulder and say, or the collar and say, I've got you. Like, come with me. We're going this way. I don't know exactly what we're going to do, but I've got this whole tool backpack full of tools. And so then, then that shifts the whole thing. We're no longer defending and spraying people with reasons and saying, don't you know, if you miss the 10 best days in the market, you're like, we don't, we're, we're no longer doing that. We're just saying, where do you want to go? 
okay, looks like things have changed. How do we course correct? So it's much more about being the pilot than the flight plan, right? So that's, that's, to me, I just think there's massive power. It's the opinion I'm trying to forcibly insert into the industry right now is that you're a guide, not a, not a defender. So I had a really interesting experience. Like I've been following George Kinder's work for a long time. And I was on, I just happened to be on a webinar and I admitted to everyone on the webinar that I had a secret love affair with George Kinder's work while he was on. But I think one of the most, you know, he was such a beautiful demonstration exactly of what you're talking about because someone asked him specifically, how do I help my clients feel less anxious? And he said, well, it starts with you. You have to clear your anxiety so that you've got the space and the openness for your clients. And when you're what you're talking about, even relating it back to what Pema Shodron talks about, is like being okay in that state of groundlessness. Like that's what I like. She has a beautiful way of describing that. So as you navigate the uncertainty right now in the world in work, in this changing relationship with clients, how are you sitting in that groundlessness? Yeah, I, I, um, I think, uh, first of all, all of that's, excuse me, all of that is amazing, right? And George, George's work, um, incredible. And between George and Pema, I don't know that I have anything to add. But what I'm doing personally is just, it helps me to understand that it's that groundlessness is reality. It doesn't matter what I think. Right? Like I'm not going to change that. And once we can be honest about that, and I think my journey on this probably started with um, Nassim Taylor's book, Fooled by Randomness when I really started to realize, like I read that book, I don't know, more more than any other book I've ever read, I read that. What book was that, Carl? Fooled by Randomness, Nassim Taleb, who wrote Black Swans, right? So people know that book, but very few people have read. I, I'm pretty sure Fooled by Randomness was the first one, and it's so good. But I, I think just the way I'm dealing with it is simply just to say, it's reality. And every time I start looping on it, like looping on something that's making me worried or nervous or concerned, I just have a set of tricks in my backpack that hopefully work. Sometimes they don't. And it's, you know, those are those like long couple of days where you're just looping, 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 looping. But mostly it's involves time outside going on a walk. I mean, my wife knows now that when I'm in one of those spaces, just literally, she'll just say you out, like out, like go lift something, throw something, climb something, like get out. And that's how I deal with it. I mean, but I think all those little things about, I mean, uh, my financial planner, her name's Christy told me the other day that she gets up, she's a mom and you know busy and she gets up an hour before everybody else in the house. She spends, she makes a big cup, cup of coffee she takes her favorite blanket. She goes and she sits on the sofa or on the favorite chair, drinks the coffee with no agenda for half an hour. Like that's what she does to make herself harder to kill. 
And I think all those little sort of things that we do, and I think having a list of those that you've thought through, like, okay, I take a warm shower. I go swim in really cold water in the winter. Like up here locally, there's some cold ponds. I'll go get in cold water. Like whatever it is, you've got a list of things that you can do to deal with the uncertainty of it all. I liked your story about the guide on the mountain and hearing you say, you know, when the guide admits, I'm scared too, right? And there's a really great sense of vulnerability there. And to tie it back around to working with financial advisors and planners and thinking about how we can collectively extend the impact of financial advice by helping them transition to a guide or by helping them transition to the new school of marketing. So much of that has to do with being vulnerable, you know, being real um, and, and being unafraid to lead with that vulnerability. Do you have an example or a story in mind where you've seen someone in this industry just be super vulnerable and you've been really taken by it? Like, do you have any stories you can share with us where you sat back and thought like, that's a level of vulnerability that's really powerful and that I don't often see? I do. One of the, you know, one of my favorite, this is an experience that happened to me way early on. It doesn't involve an advisor being really vulnerable. Um, but I remember when this first occurred to me, and there's a couple of things we've got to unpack from your question. One about um, what are we being authentic and honest about, which I want to get back to. But when it, when I first realized you could even be honest about money, um, we were at a dinner with some friends and these um, it was, they were my, my wife's two years older than me and we went to competing high schools, but we didn't know each other then. But some of the, the, well, so like the, 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 the super cool cheerleader girl named Pam from my school when I was like a freshman and she was a senior or whatever, we were, she was friends with my wife. I didn't know this like years later. So we're at dinner with them. So they're like, like, cool. They got They got everything together. They're, you know, he's going off to Wharton and she's like, like everything's together. And we're having this conversation and um, we were like, Hey, we're going on this trip. Do you guys want to come? And she said, it's not in the budget right now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, and then she went on to say like, that's why we drive the old, minivan is is we'd like a new car but it's not in the budget right now and i was like wait i like i i obviously felt like she'd broken a rule like i was like wait (laughs) you're not we're not allowed to say that like i thought we all had to pretend like that yeah of course we can go on the trip and of course and so i remember that was like that's over yeah that's going on two decades now that i still remember that moment and this idea that what we're all what we all want more than anything and particularly from a relationship with an advisor is now I realize nobody walks into an advisor's office asking for this. And that's a whole other set of righteous tricks. But what they want and what they're what they will value deeper than anything is a place to feel heard. Right. And again, I know they don't come in asking, and we got to figure out how to teach them that. But what they will point to as the most valuable thing is, oh, you know, Rebecca gets me. 
oh, John asked really good questions and listen. Oh, and they'll walk to the car scratching their heads. I like to think of them confused by the grace. Like, oh my gosh, I just, and I can't, rem- I can't tell you how many times I remember from my own practice. And then I've heard now where clients learn something about themselves that they didn't know when they walked in because somebody was honest and allowed them to be authentic. And so I think, I think that's, I mean, it's not exactly an answer to your question because I don't remember seeing many advisors do this, but I, let me just circle back to one thing real quickly about what are we being honest or authentic about? I think we need to start realizing we don't have to be, you can have massive confidence in your ability to deal with the situation without being able to pretend like you know what the situ- what the outcome is going to be. Like you should take confidence from your ability to engage in the process of planning, not confidence from the ability to create a plan. So it's, it's much more about your ability to say, oh, I, I've flown in turbulence before. I got it, right? It's not about you saying the plane's going to do this and then we're going to do this and seven times out of 10, it's going to be this. And, and the average bear market is 442 days. And it's been like, it's not about that. It's about saying, I got this. I know how to fly planes. And I think if you understand the difference between those two, you realize you can be open and honest. You don't have to be defensive about turbulent weather. Poor, poor performance. Gosh, I know. Yeah. Believe me, like I've been having this comment, like, you know, like that feeling. And yet I can still look you in the eyes and go, I got you. Right. I know where you're going and I know all the tools to get you there. And there's nobody better on the planet to get you there. So I feel the same way that you do, which is that not many financial advisors, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I didn't hear this correctly, but I think I heard you say you don't see very many financial advisors leading with vulnerability. Is that right? That is hard for me to admit out loud, and that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, we've, I feel the same way, you know, I think as a, as a business who all we do is help financial advisors to create positive business change through marketing and PR, but by really by leading with vulnerability and authenticity. And it's such a challenge, you know, when you look across the top advisor websites and you see the same words. Stop it. Like the, the, the compass, the lighthouse, or the couple holding hands on the beach. Yes. I'm going to send you a video after this. The sailboat. The sailboat. I'm going to send you a video that I think you'll get a kick out of that we created uh, that was sort of, um, you know, trying to demonstrate visually to the industry how we've allowed ourselves to sort of live in this sea of sameness, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to actually, you know, saying like, yes, I want to extend the impact of my advice by serving more people. And I want to be able to get those people, the right people into my business so that I can serve more of them. There's a disconnect. There's like the desire, but then the actual willingness to do what they need to do to stand apart in the sea of sameness. The only way you can do it is to be real and be you and not try to sound like everybody else. And not worry about it. And then, you know, total assets under management and the designations behind your name and the number of years in service and like all of these things. I mean, I don't know if you have any insight into this, but like, do you have a sense of where that, where did that come from? Like, why as an industry do we struggle so hard with 
leading with our true authentic selves and how we position ourselves to the market. It's very, it's, it's completely crazy. It, it's, it's, I've been all the sort of workshops that we've been doing for the last five years have been all around this around like, like your email newsletter, like people want to know you, right? They don't want to know anyone else. Like that's why it doesn't work when you buy that piece of that, that, template newsletter from whatever that has the whatever in it. It's why the first five, 20 minutes of a first meeting, we've been teaching workshops on first meetings forever too, that like nobody wants to hear. Nobody, nobody cares about AUM. Nobody cares about, I, about professional designations other than like maybe one or two. Certainly like you don't need another one. Kitsis. <laughs> um, I play that joke with Michael all the time, so it's fine. But but yeah, nobody cares. So here's the deal: where it comes from is it is deeply we're hardwired. We've been trained since we were. It's the same place that it comes from when you when you have it squashed out of you that you don't know how to be an artist. It's the same place, right? We are hardwired to not go outside of the herd. Everybody behaves as you think doing that equals death. That's literally how you feel. Like if I go, if I do this thing where I'm a little different, I like what you're essentially asking people to do is stand out and be different. What people think stand out and be different means is die, right? Because you're going to, you're going to get, you're going to get kicked out of the herd Mm -hmm. and everybody knows if you get kicked out of the herd, you're going to die. You'll be eaten by a lion. So I, I think we just, we're wired. It's very similar to the imposter syndrome. It's very similar to all those. We're wired in a way that kept us alive as a species. It's very similar to investor behavior, to be honest. Like you're wired to get more of what gives you security and pleasure and run away from things that cause you pain. That's kept us alive as a species, but it's not very good when it comes to investing. That means buy high and sell low. It's also not very good when it comes to marketing because it means sound the same as everybody else. And so we just need to realize like, no, nobody, and you don't like it either. You know, like you, when you're doing it, you don't enjoy it. You're like, ah, blah, 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 blah. like you really just want to go like, cause this is what happens to me. I'll writing some of that stuff. And then I'll just be like, no. And like, in like a fit of rage, I'll tear the thing up and just be like this. And I'll just say it. And then I'm like, yeah, that, yeah, that. Right. And that's, I mean, I've done that a couple of times in my life and, and I know why people think it's going to be painful because it is painful. Our industry is terrible. We, we do eat people who decide to stand out. I mean, I, I could show you the emails. So if you, if you care about that stuff, you know, but I'm telling you, I have a unique perspective because I've written for the industry for a long time and I've written for the public for a long time. 10 years every week with the New York Times. I have the emails to prove it. They don't want to hear that crap. They, they just want, they want to work with somebody who's a human. They want right. you to stop using those words. They look at those websites and go, seriously, another lighthouse? Like, like I, so I'm telling you that's what they want. I'm telling you the fear. There's no lions. I mean, there's a few lions, but you're not going to die, Right. And it's far more fun anyway. Carl, I love um, on one of your episodes and you had just kind of spoken to that where you were like, if you don't agree with me, send me an email. Like I'd love to hear from you. And it sounds like you're getting those emails. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever, 
which I always think is a good sign, right? It's like when yeah, people yeah, are subscribing yeah. or they move out, that's good to know, like as soon as you can. Because I do believe there are people who want exactly what you have from someone exactly like you. And as you've do done this dance, and obviously anyone who follows your work, like you're doing deep work, right? You're really like connecting it, like, and I almost view as like a philosopher in it. Mm. Has there been a moment, like circling back to your previous comment about what are you authentic about and what are you not? Has there been a moment in your career where you created something, it felt very vulnerable for you and maybe too vulnerable? Or like, has there been a moment where you created something and you're like, I don't know if I should put a, should have put that out in the world? <laughs> is, this, is, this, is this a leading question? No. Do you know the answer to this question? No, I don't know the answer. <laughs> okay, yeah. I feel that's, that's, yeah, that's why this will be fun to talk about because I, I, I because I can eat. So, um, oh man, there's two. Th so it, look, there's two things. One, most recently, this one's easy. The the fellowship, this thing we created for advisors. I, it's 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 exactly this moment. We created all these workshops and and I online courses, and I was just like online course, and people were comparing it to other online courses, and it was course stuff and we were writing long sales like we were doing all the things and I was like no and we we had a very profitable business running that workshop and I was literally like we went from super profitable to zero in a month because I said no like we're not doing that we're doing this and we wrote this manifesto called the fellowship and people are like what's the fellowship I'm like I don't even know how to describe it that's how like it's an anti-course it's like nothing you've ever seen it'll cost you 500 bucks to find out what it is like, because we don't know how to describe it. So that's one thing, right? And that's been a little scary from a business perspective. But, but uh, look, let's just, let's just spend a little bit of time talking about me and my house. So I wrote this column. Um, we uh, made, yeah, this is so, so you'll see how gun shy I am about this already. So if we could, everybody listening, do me a favor. It's been, it's, I look at my watches if that's going to tell me. It's been 12 years since the, the, the credit crisis or the housing crisis, right? We lost our house. We had to short sell our house in Vegas after the credit crisis. We had to do that at a time before it was like even semi-okay, right? Like it was still, and I'm not saying it's okay now. I'm just saying more people have done it. Um, and, and, uh, and then I decided to write about it publicly. My wife always jokes. She's like, we have conversations about money all the time and she'll say, Hey, is this on or off the record? And I always say, <laughs> you, you'll have to wait to find out. Right. So, so this particularly, I was like, I'm not no way. Like I was so, so embarrassed. Now let's just listeners to this. Would you do me a favor, set aside your opinion about whether you think I should be banned for life? Like just, I've already gotten those emails. It's fine. Like it's fine. <laughs> um, let's just talk about what happens to you when you do really authentic work. Um, so the book was coming out, the behavior of the first book and it was with penguin and I, um, they didn't know about this and my editor of the New York times didn't know about this. And we had moved from, from Vegas after losing our home to park city. And I, I had at the time, like, look, and I, I'm not going to go through all the details about how the decision was made, but, but there's an article. If you just search Carl Richards, I should have known better. You'll see it was the full 
the full page of the New York Times, like with a picture of me. Like, so talk about vulnerable, right? And a few people were going to read it. And um, I've got a whole bunch of thoughts about whether or not big mistakes were made or not that we don't need to go into here. But we moved to we moved back to Utah because I was convinced that's what I had to do to keep my business alive. And one night, late at night, I'm talking to my editor and I tell him, I'm like, man, we've got, you know, some cash in a shoebox and a bunch of debt. And he's like, what? what? And so I, I told him, and he was the first person I told outside, literally like my wife and maybe one friend. So no one knew. That's how scared I was. And I tell him, he's like, oh my gosh, you have got to write that story. And I was like, there's no way, man, no way. He's like, you have got, do you realize how many people are suffering that would, do you realize how many people would connect to how you went through that, how you made the decision and what you thought about and that you're working through it and like you, you're doing your best. And, and I was like, no, there's no way. He's like, why? I said, because I'll lose my, all my clients. And he was like, well, I'm going to keep bothering you. So he kept bothering me, kept bothering me. And one day he says, hey, uh, your book's about to come out. Do you want to write that story or do you want somebody else to write that story? And I was like, oh, you, you totally cornered me. And he's like, yeah. So I, I go to Penguin and I sit them down. I'm like, because there's, a, you know, contracts on the line and everything. And I'm like, hey, I got to tell you this story. And I thought they were going to say, forget it, give us our money back. And they were like, oh my gosh, you've got to write that story. And I was like, stop. And so then like everybody who I thought was going to crush me said, you got to write that story. So I write this story. 9,000 comments, right? Wow. Um, I, it was on the front page of the Times for 12 straight days um, on the most emailed thing. I got hundreds of emails. I got phone calls. And the only ones, and I'm just going to be honest here, the only ones that were really, really negative were from other financial planners, mm. right? Like those are the only ones that just, you know, all sorts of problems. Like we shouldn't be allowed. Now, before I did this, I called and I won't mention who it was, but I called the president of one of our large financial planning organizations and said, Hey, I'm thinking of doing this because he's a friend. And I'm like, am I doing something wrong? He said, no, we really, really need the ability for us to be more honest because believe me, you're not the only one. So I checked with the industry. I checked with everybody. We do this thing. I thought I was going to lose my business. I thought my clients were going to leave me. I thought I was going to not have the book. I, and look, I would have never done it for this, but it's so crazy that the opposite happened, right? That, that clients came out of the woodwork that, and I realized you don't necessarily want to, I mean, the example everybody always uses, you don't want to hire an overweight personal trainer. Mm -hmm. Look, I, but when we're talking about with money, like, you don't, we don't have to make mistakes just so we're authentic or empathetic, but we're humans. And when we do make mistakes, it's okay for us to admit it's okay for us. Like, a, a, I couldn't believe how many clients came to me because of that. Now, again, I would never, ever suggest doing it for that. But all I'm saying is when you say, I'm not sure. That you know what? When I watch the news right now, I get scared too. Let's dig in, right? When my wife and I talk about money, sometimes it turns into a fight. 
Like, let me show you how we deal with that. Like, we're scared to do anything. Like, I, and I think we're doing ourselves massive disservice because of it. So now you've gotten way more than you bargained for um, because you got me to talk about this. I saw the questions that you sent over and I was like, oh, great. We're going to have to talk about the house. I haven't talked about the house for like five years. So anyway, I, I all I'm saying is um, a couple of lessons. And I'll wrap up with this story. One, can we please be a little more gracious to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, can we just understand that you have no idea what's going on in somebody else's life? Because mm-hmm. if you knew what we did, to try and avoid that, you you wouldn't have written that email. Like just to be clear. Number two, I, people, the number one lesson for me was that to be a little bit less judgmental and to help people understand money is about emotion and feeling. And that one person's plan, most real financial plans don't fit in a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I learned all these stories from people about um, that irresponsible thing they were doing. Like a friend of mine took a heli, heli skiing trip every year and he wasn't saving for retirement. And I was like, dude, that's so irresponsible. He's like, Carl, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be alive right now. Like you can, you can argue about, he should have gotten cheaper counseling, whatever. Kitsis has talked about this, not funding his, 401k or something and investing in some startups irresponsible Mm. and and, and on a different level. Right. And so I'm simply saying, let's be about the people's plans, not about our own view of what their plans should be. And then let's be okay talking about that and realizing like, we're all human. Like we all make mistakes. And most of the financial planners I know, the reason they're in this industry is because they're screwed up themselves. Mm -hmm. and they're trying to sort through it and they were interested in it from the beginning and they had maybe a bad relationship with money at home or there was some, you know, you hear a lot about a lot of divorce attorneys coming from divorced families. Right. Right. So anyway, sorry about the rant, but that's, that's a story about, I don't, I've never done anything like that or since it scared the crap out of me. I went last part, (laughs) I went to CrossFit that morning when the times thing came out. And, uh, you know, CrossFit gym that I went to all the time. And I knew everybody there. And first I went to the grocery store and I bought every copy right? <laughs> to, get, to, to get it off out of like, I don't want anybody seeing this. I bought every copy. <laughs> then I went to the CrossFit and I'm laying, laying there in the, the sort of warm up. And this guy named Paul says to me, hey, how, how are you, Carl? And I was like, come on, man. Don't pretend like you don't know. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I, was, and I was like, oh my gosh, it turns out our, the whole world doesn't revolve around our own problems, right? That, that even when we think it's the end of the world for us, right, that there's, things are okay, right? So anyway, that's the end of my rant. I love it. I love that. So, and I'm prepared for all your emails. Bring them. Bring them. Come on. I can take them. Well, I mean, I always find it intriguing to talk to people with different opinions to me because then you start to discover, you're like, that's interesting. Sometimes you can see how they got to their point of view, how we just have these different worldviews. 
Something that Meg and I have been talking about quite a lot, Carl, we'll start to wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. And I think Meg and I could talk to you all day, mm. um, but we only have a short amount here. And you've just gifted us with all of these stories in such a profound way, because it really, for us, validates everything that we're talking about, you know, internally, that we're trying to create change from, of humanize our industry. Like, I don't think that there's a more powerful way than in people's money. And I think just circling back to your point, I mean, when I'm coaching advisors on their marketing, the number one question I have is, why are you in the work that you do? And every single advisor that I've ever worked with, there is some heart-centered money story. Do you know, every single, every, it takes us a while to get there, but every single one of them. So what Meg and I were talking about is the imposter syndrome. And the question that we had for you on it, because we all have it, we all suffer from it. And I always think it's such a good sign when it comes up because it means you're stretching. What does Carl say to the imposter when he shows up in your head? Yeah. Yeah. Um, super good question. I'm just trying to think I've got, well, it's too far away. Um, uh, yeah. So this will make sense in a minute. I, so the imposter syndrome for me, this has been a lifelong struggle and I started recognizing it. Maybe in fact, the most other than my house column that did the best at the times was my column on the imposter syndrome. So this is something that you're not alone. Like we're all, we all go through it. And the way I've dealt with it is I've gone through phases and I've seen different. So I, I, a lot of people deal with imposter syndrome, like it's a strain of fear and they take the approach of like, get out of here, fear. Like, like that sort of macho thing, like kick fear in the teeth, like that kind of thing. And I, I can't remember if it was Elizabeth Gilbert or Brene Brown that first taught me this was still taught all of us this, not like she taught me personally, but um, yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Yeah. So backseat that whole thing. But I love the idea of recognizing that fear, generally speaking, fear has served me at times. I, I actually know specific instances in my life where fear has kept me alive. So it's not somebody I want to kick in the teeth. So that was the first pillar. And then the next pillar was I started to realize that feeling. So I can remember like when the book came out and one of them was like, I remember when I first spoke to the, like the biggest audience I had spoken to up to this point was 3,500 people and it was in South Africa. And so South Africa, you know, it was in, it was, you know, it was in Cape Town and I was, the car was taking me there and there were signs like Carl Richards event. And I was like, this is what, what yeah. is going on? And, and, and I, I go out to do the warm up and it's a, you know, a 3,200 seat sort of like theater style. And I was just like, no, 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 there's no, like somebody doesn't. So I, I started for a long time, that feeling shows up and you don't recognize it. You just, it's, it's an underlying current and it feels like fear. And what we're trained to do with fear is stop. And so we think that feeling is a stop sign. So the step one is to recognize how it feels to you. And so once I recognized how it felt, I then realized like, wait, that feeling has been around every time I've done anything cool. Mm-hmm. I started to realize, I, I sort of like had almost like a, like flashcards. I was like pictures, snapshots of cool events. I was like, oh, wait, when I got married, 
I remember that. When my first child was born, I remember, in fact, all of my children, I remember that. The start line of a mountain bike race, I remember that. Every adventure I've ever done, I remember that. It's the same feeling. It's exactly the same feeling. So I was like, wait. So I almost, these, these like snapshots of it was like everybody who was in the room and there was one person in the room every time. And that one person, so I personified imposter syndrome at that point. I was like, that's imposter syndrome. So then one last piece of the story is in my studio in my office in Utah, um, my door was over my left shoulder when I'd sit down every Thursday to draw the sketch for the times I would, <laughs> I'd take out this card stock and a Sharpie, right? Like there was no Adobe, whatever, like it was card stock and, a, and I would draw the thing and then when I get done with it, and it would normally take like hundreds of pieces of paper and there'd be like a stack of paper all over the office. I would just throw them over my shoulder. And then when I get it right, I would scan it in a Fujitsu snap scanner. So like I, I, didn't, I didn't have a flatbed scanner. I didn't have like a, there was no light coming through the mirror windows. There's no music. I'd scan it. In, and then I just about the time I'd go to hit send to my editor, I would hear, I would sense somebody over at the door. I had a glass door to the outside. And I'd look over and I would see, and it was always the same person. And this person was in all those pictures too. It turned out it was Mr. Burns, Homer Simpson's boss. Uh, Remember? And yeah. the reason I was looking to see is Justin Costelli sent me a Mr. Burns bobblehead after he heard the story. So I, it's right there in the thing. So I like Mr. Burns and Mr. Burns would come in and go, right when I was about to hit send, he'd go, what's going on in here? What? Is that a Sharpie? <laughs> is that a flat? Is that a snap? A snap scan? That's cute. Are you an, you're a kid from the hills in Utah. What, they're going to totally find out when you send that one in. It's over, buddy. Like that's the, and then the other thing he would do is there was a big switch, like one of those giant train switches and it said on off and it was labeled Carl's career. <laughs> and he would, and it was on and he would reach up and grab it. And he would just look at me and laugh and flip it to off. That was like, the, that was what went on. And so then I started to realize like, hey, you do this every time. Like you come every time. And in fact, the ones that I'm the most scared about that you come in the hardest often are the ones that do the best. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, bring it. Like now, now when I feel that feeling, I just think, hey, man. Like, and I personified him as Mr. Burns, a man. You can personify him as whoever you want, an animal, a dog or whatever. Like I, I'm just like, Hey, I'm glad you're here. Let's get to work. So to me, it's flipped the whole thing. It takes a minute to go, Oh, that, Oh, that tightness in the chest. I'm feeling right. Oh, 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 oh I got it. That's right. It's just, no one's going to die. It's just Mr. Burns back because we're about to do something cool. Mm. There you go. That's the story. I first heard about the imposter syndrome on the podcast that you were on with Michael Kitsis. And mm. I remember I was in my car. I was driving eastbound on Olympic Boulevard. I was passing mm. my, my favorite frozen yogurt shop. I mean, I remember it that vividly thinking mm. that for the first time in my professional career that like I was seen, you know, no. like, I'm not alone. Like I, I started my own business when I was 29. I was on the eve of my 30th birthday. I mm. 
have felt like for a lot of those years that I had to show up in a certain way, that I had to act a certain way, that I had to know exactly what to say when I walked into a room, because if I didn't, they wouldn't trust me. They wouldn't believe mm. They wouldn't think that FICOM was a worthwhile place to choose as their partner. And I let that loop, you know, cycle through my head. And this was a couple of years ago. And obviously there's been a lot of work that's been done since then. And for me, a lot of the power has been in, you know, involving myself, asking questions, asking for feedback and involving myself with peers that, that, you know, help with my confidence. But honestly, like that podcast was game changing for me on my professional journey to just feel seen and to feel and recognize like I'm not alone. This is Carl Richards. This is Michael Kitsis. Like they're talking about this, like I'm not alone. So I just wanted to say out loud and on the record, thank you. Oh, Meg, that means the world. Like, thank you. I, I, um, it's so crazy how lonely the creative life can feel. And when I say creative life, I mean a financial planner's life too. It's a creative life. Like you just don't. And the funny thing about the other piece that's important about imposter syndrome is to realize it doesn't go away. Mm, Right. Right. And in fact, I think as, as your career grows, it may even get more intense because you're looking at how far there is to fall. You're like, Whoa, that's a long ways down. And, and I, but it's really amazing to hear that. Thank you. I, I, I Now I'm sort of designing a life. My entire goal is around designing a life that exposes myself as often as possible to that feeling, right? Versus trying to protect myself from it. It's like, no, I want it. You know, I don't probably want it every day because you sort of get worn out. But I like, I want a specific rotation of Mr. Burns showing up saying, hey, what are you about to do? And I'm like, yeah, you're back. Let's go, Right. So, so good to hear, Megan. Thank you for sharing that story. Of course. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I mean, <laughs> I love that you've personified your imposter syndrome. I think that's going to have to be my next step in that as well. Carl, thank yeah. you so much for coming on. I, someone told me this morning that you're friends with Seth Godin. I wanted to ask, who's, your, who's, your, who's more of your bestie, Kitsis or Godin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I like, so my friendship, my friendship with Seth is, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people feel like they're friends with Seth. I mean, we, but it's, he helped me with one particular struggle with that we shared with some family with kids actually. Um, but I talk to Michael way more often. Um, in fact, I'm doing an event with Seth in two in, in a, a week and a half that I'll make sure to get you the details on. But um, I talk to Michael a lot more than I talk to Seth, but he's amazing. And, and I think he's amazing because of his commitment to his new book is called the practice, his commitment to the practice of showing up and saying to the world, like, this is my favorite thing. He says, saying to the world here, I made this. I hope you like it. Yeah. Right. And that's all you're saying to advisors. You're just saying, hey, would you find a thing that you make that you can say here? Now, realize in that act, like to me, that act is you're at you are asking people. And I know you know this, but you are asking people to do one of the scariest things in the world because you're essentially saying, here's a piece of me. Judge it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like and you're saying, be OK with that. 
and and those people that have done it, and Seth would be one of the kings, I think. Yeah. Would, and Elizabeth Gilbert and Brene Brown would say, mm-hmm. "Oh, you're in for a rich life, right? Like, oh, the the like like we're we're in the water where you think the monsters live. Turns out there's no monsters. There's just beautiful sunsets and." Yeah, every once in a while you cry in your cover under your covers, but it's, be- <laughs> it's because you cry that you get to see the sunset. And so here I made this. I hope you like it. That's my biggest lesson from Seth. Seth has, has changed my life, definitely. What does the new school mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think you've done an amazing job of in this conversation of of helping um, helping me and everybody who listens, hopefully understand that I love the idea of like, that's so old school, right? That's the old school way of doing things. And, and I think if I had to sum it up with a word, which I am not very into this word, but it's authenticity, right? And the only reason I'm not very into it is because it's like, ah, it's all over, but just, you know what better, but the better word would be human, mm-hmm. right? Could you just be a human? And mm-hmm. we always joke about that. Are we talking to advisors right now or humans? Mm-hmm. What if we could just get the advisors to be humans, to speak like humans, to treat other people like humans in their meetings? Can I tell you one more quick story? I know you're like yes, out of time. Yes, we, we can be here all day for you, Carl. Well, <laughs> now, now, now you guys, yeah, anyway, now you've got a nerve. Um, I remember in a, I was in a meeting watch, uh, with an advisor um, and a lady comes in, her name's Martha. Martha's husband passed away four weeks earlier. She's a widow. She was in her late 70s. And she has a banker's box full of stuff. Martha, most as most as true with most couples, you know, one partner typically took care of the money. And in Martha's case, not always true at all. I'm not saying that. Make sure this is not a gender statement. In this case, it was Martha's husband. So Martha walks in with this banker box. Her husband's passed away four weeks earlier. She has no idea what to do. She gets referred to this advisor. The advisor sits down. There's the banker's box. And he said, my what brought you in today? My husband passed away. You know, Sally told me I should come see you. I've got all this mail. I don't know what any of it means. And the advisor says something like, well, what are your goals? Right. Which is not how a human, a human would say, oh my gosh, Martha, I'm sorry to hear about that. And by the way, that banker's box looks heavy. You know, like I imagine that's been tough. You know, and that's that's an example of how often and how easy we just sort of think like risk, standard deviation, volatility, you know, like education. Oh, your parents lived under a bridge, you know, like 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 no, wait. So that's new school to me would mean being human. Hmm. Thanks, Carl, for coming on. It is an unbelievable experience. We were excited about it all week. And especially this weekend leading up to it, where is the best place for people to find you? Uh, probably the Society of Advice, the societyofadvice.com. Okay. Go there and, and poke around. You'll figure it out from there. And send you an email note. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or Twitter is the other place. I'm not there anymore, but we, we, do, we put our best work there. So if, if you want to follow the work, you can go to behaviorgap.com on Twitter. Thank you, everyone. And thanks, everyone, if you're listening or watching our videos, if you loved this and it was helpful and there's someone that you think would benefit from it in your life, 
like it and share it with them. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.